0: If you will turn your Bibles to 1 John. Welcome to those of you visiting or those of you who weren't here last week. If you are visiting and you're planning on going through 1 John with us, I would encourage you to go to our website, go to iTunes, and listen to last week's message. It's an introduction into this book, and a lot of the things I'll start to say today kind of had their introduction last week in the introduction to 1 John. It was important for us to kind of set the stage, spread out the map, look at the whole thing before we start going step by step through it. Before we jump into First John, however, I uh, just wanted to share a couple of thoughts with you um, just from my heart and mind that I trust are reflective of the Scriptures as well as it relates to uh, the last week or so in the Middle East. Um, I know many of you have been following along with the events there, and because this conflict brings up so many questions related to end times, biblical prophecy, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel as they were then and kind of what they are now, just wanted to share a few thoughts with you. This is not an exhaustive study. There will be things I'm not saying here, I'm just taking three to five minutes to (laughs) give you some thoughts, but at least maybe these can be some things that you hang your thoughts and prayers on. Um, First thing, that Israel has always been of um, keen interest to Christians. Christians, followers of Jesus, have always had a special interest in the people of God. In fact, salvation came from the Jews. We know that to be said in the Scriptures that the Jews are the ones that Brought us the Messiah. God planned that He would come from that nation, that group of people. Jesus Christ came. The Gospel of John says that He came and He came to His own, came to that nation, came to the Jewish people, and they largely would not receive Him. We know that many of them did come to Him, but largely they rejected Him. The nation of Israel began really with Abraham back in Genesis 12, and promised Abraham back in Genesis 12. And even as early on as Genesis 3, the Bible tells us that there would be a war between the seed of the woman, who would birth the Savior and the people of God, and the seed of the serpent, Satan. There'd be a war. And so when we see what happened last Saturday morning and what's continued to happen even throughout this last week in the Middle East, in a sense, this is all prophesied back in Genesis 3 seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. And so Israel, as the original people of God, have always been a group that Christians have looked out for, been concerned about, and that's certainly true when we see the events that have unfolded there in the last week or so. Again, the Jewish people started as a nation through our father Abraham. They were meant to be a light to the rest of the world. It wasn't just that salvation would only be for them. Forget the rest of the people throughout the rest of human history. No, they were meant to be a light to the nations to show the wisdom of this glorious, all supreme God. In many ways, that nation failed to do so. God then took the message, not just to His original people Israel, but to the nations. You see glimpses of that in the books of Ruth and Jonah and a number of other Old Testament books. Salvation isn't just for Israel, it's meant to be also for the nations as well. And so when Jesus came, He went to His own people, and some of them responded to Him, some of them didn't. And then He turned to the Gentiles, and Gentiles were saved. A lot of Gentiles, a lot of Gentiles in this room that have been saved. But that doesn't mean we forget Israel. Read Romans 9 through 11. We know that God keeps His promises to the Jewish people. God is faithful What He said He would do, He will do. So, Christians even today anticipate a time when people from Israel, a remnant from Israel will be saved, will be reconciled back to their Messiah, the one that we know, the one that they've rejected. They will, a remnant of them, come back to Him. And so, we have a special interest in that people of God who are not right with Him now, but many of whom will be one day as they come through Jesus Christ. We have a special interest in how they are and how they fare. Now, the nation of, the nation state of Israel kind of was created in 1948. The nation state of Israel isn't maybe to be matched up perfectly with Old Testament Israel, the Jewish people as a whole. There's people who are of Israel, Jewish people all over even our neighborhoods in our area. So, it's not just that the nation, the nation state of Israel there in the Middle East is the only people that we're thinking of. There's been a desire for the safety and peace of all Jewish people in the thinking of Christians. This tragedy has shown us of the need to pray for this people, the need to look out for them, to defend them, again, not as brothers and sisters in Christ, but simply as people who have a promise people have yet to see their Messiah. So, evangelistic prayers are appropriate at this time, that they would turn to a Messiah King that said He will one day rule the entire world and He is their King. We pray that they would turn to Him, turn to Jesus. We pray that missions efforts who've been going on there in the Middle East and even around here, missions efforts of saved Jewish people who now trust in Jesus as Messiah, would, would happen to where those people can walk those, Old Testament, or those Jews through the Old Testament, pointing them to Jesus the Messiah, showing that He is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. Pray for things like that. But we also know that salvation isn't just meant for one nation, one people group. Salvation is meant for all the world, so pray for people in Hamas to be converted. Pray for innocent Palestinians who are not terrorists to be converted to Jesus Christ. Pray that they would all bow the knee to Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the King of all nations. So, I just wanna shepherd your thoughts there. Keep praying evangelistically. See, sometimes in our political thinking, we think Israel good, Hamas bad. And politically, we understand why you think that, why we think that. But salvifically, Israel needs Christ. Hamas needs Christ, Palestinians need Christ, Iranians need Christ, Canadians need Christ, Americans need Christ. We need Christ, and so pray for the work of the gospel that often shines in dark times would come to fruition and fruit would be born. I also say just as a reminder to you, people often say or ask me or ask you at times like this, does this mean that we're in the end times? Yes. And we have been ever since Jesus ascended. We've been in the end times. And so I want to encourage you, the <clears throat> flock that I have privileged uh, privilege to be a shepherd over, <clears throat> I want to encourage you, don't let the enemy take your eye off the ball at these times. <clears throat> a lot of times Christians will sit on their couch in front of their computer, watch the news, and try to, you know, make charts and kind of show how I know exactly when the end of the world's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen where Jesus said, I want you to be about a certain work before I come. Make disciples of all nations. And so I I wanna call on you to remember the work Jesus has for us before he returns, and to make that what you major in. Your neighbor from Nicaragua, your friend from Israel, your coworker from Paraguay, they all need Christ. And we've got his message to proclaim because one day soon there'll be a time where we can't proclaim that message anymore. And so major in what God's given us to do now. There could be a lot more to say. None of that takes away from my preaching time, okay? Uh, <laughs> but but I want to encourage you to pray for Israel, pray for her enemies, pray for salvation and pray that the church all around the world wouldn't get thrown off course, but would still stay committed to making the gospel known everywhere, okay? Let me do that before we get into 1 John. Father, we are asking you to bring about salvation. Pray that you would shine the light of the gospel in the Middle East, all around the globe, as we think about and ask questions about what's happening right now. As people are hurting and losing loved ones, people are losing their lives, We pray for justice to be done in Your timing. We pray for salvation to be brought according to Your will. And Father, for us, for this local church, Canyon Bible Church of Prescott, we pray that our desire to see You known in all places among people groups would lead to not just a desire, but to action, to prayer, to more short-term mission trips, to more strengthening of believers in other places to more giving and helping and sending and going. Make us increasingly a gospel people knowing that the time is short. Hell is real, heaven is real, and you are good. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Now to 1 John. We're in this new series that we're entitling Assured Child of God because I'm convinced that's what John wrote for, to have the children of God assured of where we stand. Again, you can see last week's message as we made the argument for that being the theme of this book. And for this morning, we come to 1 John 1, to 1-4, so please follow along as I read. John starts his letter this way, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. I've entitled this message Assurance from God's Messengers. Who can you trust nowadays? I mean, just getting information about Israel and Hamas, which news outlets do you listen to? Which do you not? Now, that's rhetorical. You don't need to answer back, okay? But who do you trust? Back in 2008, The Washington Post was evidently tired of politicians lying about things and getting away with it, so they set up a way to fact-check politicians, both at debates and in speeches. And as they checked the facts of these politicians running for president in 2008, they awarded them a score based on how truthful their words were. Score of zero is, okay, truthful. A score of four means, no, 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 that's an outright lie. And the system they used, the, 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 the scores, the, the name of the scores was actually called Pinocchios. Okay, so if you lie a little bit, one Pinocchio. I mean, if this was an all-out blatant lie, that's four Pinocchios. And the editors of the Washington Post would score speeches and even debates, and it still goes on to today. Well, there were a group of people who deserve four Pinocchios threatening these congregations that John is writing to. As I told you last week, they're known as the departed, those who have left the church and are telling people still in the church, you are wrong. You are not right with God because of something you believe, because you're listening to the apostles. You should listen to us and what we're saying about salvation, about life with God. And John's writing to keep the church from believing those things. Those outside false teachers, those who have departed, were troubling this group of saints. And this group of saints didn't know, are we really in the right with God? Are we really assured of eternal life? Because they're saying some other things. And John's writing to say, don't listen to them. You listen to us. 1 John 1, to 1-4 gives us clarity as to who the us are who the we are, that John wants these churches to listen to. It is the apostles, the messengers that God has sent to proclaim his message, to proclaim his word. This passage shows us that we can trust when the apostles assure us of eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life because we believe the apostles' message. The apostles' writings. That's what these four verses are about. We can have assurance because we're listening to God's messengers. The outline for this morning is in three parts the three part plan of God meant to bring you assurance of eternal life. The three part plan of God meant to bring you assurance of eternal life. I'm going to read the three parts to you rapidly here at the beginning, but I'll go through them point by point as we go. First, the message of life came in the flesh. Second, the message of life has been proclaimed by God's messengers. Third, the message of life brings you into the family of God. First, the message of life came in the flesh. This is chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So so much sensory talk right here, isn't there? Hearing, seeing, touching. Why? Is John just trying to be poetic? No, he's writing for a purpose because they needed to hear that. They needed to hear that John touched the Savior. He was real. He was a man. He, they, he heard the Savior. He saw the Savior. John wants it to be clear that he saw the man who is the Savior, Why would John need to say this? Because at the time of this letter's writing, there were seeds of some early heresies that were already starting to be sown that would threaten this church and even later churches. It's not absolutely clear as to which heresy he's referring to, but at the very least, we know that there was a false teaching that was... Maybe starting to take root in these churches that taught that Jesus was not fully man. Jesus appeared to be man. He, he was born, one heresy says, born Jesus of Nazareth, and then around 30 years old, when the Holy Spirit, like the dove, came upon him as baptism, that's when he became God. Well, that's not true. Or again, another heresy that he only appeared to be man. He wasn't actually a man. Another heresy. Because we need a man like us, a human being in the flesh to die for us, to adequately be our substitute. It's not that just some animal dies for us. That's not enough. We need a man to die for us, a substitute who can make this actual exchange. This man can give us his obedience. He can take our sin. We need a man to die for us. And Jesus taught that, the apostles taught that, the churches taught that, but there were heretics trying to teach that, no, no, Jesus only appeared as man because they thought of the physical as so bad. God could not be a man? That's heresy. Or, again, Jesus was a man. He was really a man, but he only became God and divine when the Holy Spirit fell on him around 30 years old. Well, that's a problem too because then you've got an imperfect person being our Savior because he wasn't God until 30 years of age. So 1 through 30 there would have been some disobedience he's not the perfect substitute we need. So there are the seeds of these heresies evidently sprouting around this time and John writes and starts off in one one, saying it very clearly, Jesus is a man, he came in flesh I saw him, I heard him, I touched him and right off the bat He's challenging the false teachers and trying to encourage those remaining in these churches to hold to orthodox teaching from the disciples, from the apostles. So John starts this letter strongly, clear evidence, clear eyewitness account that he's seen, heard, and touched the word of life, speaking of Jesus himself. All the apostles, all of God's messengers, had seen Him. Even Paul later saw Him in a vision. All of them saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, and John wants that to be clear right away as he talks to his little children. That which was from the beginning reminds us of John 1.1, right? In the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John likes to point us to the fact that Jesus has existed with God from the beginning not just later on when He appeared and then when He was baptized around 30 years old. No, He's been God, existed with God from the beginning. It's a way that John likes to write to show us that that's true. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the message that brings life. Jesus came with the power of life because the Father has life. The son has life. Jesus came with the power of life. You see that in him raising the dead. You also see that in him giving people spiritual life. Their eyes are open. They've been bound in sin. They hear the message of God coming in human flesh and their eyes are open and they realize, I need the righteousness of God. They embrace Jesus Christ and they're given spiritual life. They can now love like they never used to because now they love like God loves. They can now serve and speak like children of God. Jesus came himself embodying that message, giving that message, and John has seen him, heard him, touched him. He came as man who gave life. The message of life came in the flesh. Again, just think of a couple places where John makes this very clear. John 1, 14 The Word became flesh, not the Word appeared to be flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 19.35, at Jesus' death, John says this, he who saw it, referring to himself, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. John's referring to himself in the third person saying, I saw his death. I saw him literally die. And I'm writing these things to you. I'm telling you these things so that you would believe my message. The God-man came and died for your sins. You can have eternal life. So important that they know that Jesus came in the flesh. John has seen him. The apostles have seen him. They testify to it. Luke records that Jesus said this after his resurrection. Now, listen to this. Jesus needs you to be convinced that he came in the flesh and now still lives in the flesh in a glorified body. Luke 24, 39. Jesus said this, see my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. From Jesus to the apostles, it's always been the teaching of Christianity that Jesus actually came in the flesh. He was a perfect substitute, just like us, died in the place of our sins, us up for our sins, gave us his righteousness that only another man could do. He came in the flesh, and now he still lives in a glorified body in the flesh. He wants his people to be assured of that. And John's writing, he starts off this epistle wanting you to know that he's seen, heard, and touched the Savior. So, get the message here, when John and the other apostles tell them something, it's credible. Believe it. I was there. We trust eyewitnesses more than we trust people who heard fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh hand. Someone says to you something like, I was living in L.A. in Watts during the time of the Watts riots. And let me tell you about those days. You automatically are listening because what they're saying happened, you trust happened because they were there. You trust them. Or if someone says, I was there the night the Berlin Wall came down. And let me tell you this. Well, whatever the this is, it's got some credibility because they were there. Same situation here. John was there. The apostles were there. Paul was there. Peter was there. They were there. They saw Jesus. They saw what he did. They saw and heard. They heard what he taught. They saw him die. They saw him after he rose again. And now they're proclaiming to you the message he's given them. You can trust in that. So how can we be assured of the eternal life that God's given to us? First, the message of life came in the flesh. Know that first. Secondly, the message of life has been proclaimed by the apostles. There's a certain credibility that they have because it was God's plan for them to have it. It was God's plan for them to witness these things and then to tell them to us. Down through the ages, The church has always held to the apostles' testimony. So God sends His Son. His Son does His work of living righteously and dying for sinners, bringing that message to people, and He grabs a group of people, grabs a group of men to teach that message to, show that message to, and He says that they're going to carry on that message and that people were going to believe through their word, the apostles' word. This is the plan of God. So when you hear the apostles speaking, you know that's God's plan, that they would speak and we would hear the word of life, the message of life. The message of life has been proclaimed by the apostles, the messengers sent from God. They weren't just eyewitnesses. They weren't just there. The Father and the Son made sure that that they saw what happened, they knew what happened, and that they would then go and proclaim what happened. So it's important that the apostles saw and touched and heard, but now we got a new sense here. We've thought about hands and eyes and ears, but now a new sense comes in verse 2. The life was manifest, shown to us, and we've seen it and testified to it. Now the apostles are opening their mouths and talking about what Jesus did and testify to it and proclaim to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim, heard with our ears, saw with our eyes, touched with our hands, and now we open our mouth to tell you. The message of life was designed to be proclaimed by the apostles. Now, let me show you this. The last night, the night before Jesus died, he indicated that this would be the plan to the disciples. Go back to John chapter 14. And while you're turning there, if any of you are thinking right now, what's the big deal? Because Christians are the only people that believe that the apostolic faith is the one that we hold on to. All other religions have new apostles, later apostles. No, we hold to these. That's why this is crucial to understand. John fourteen twenty five in the upper room. Listen to Jesus. Talk to the apostles. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of all that I said to you. My Father's going to send his Spirit so that you can remember the things that I've taught you and said to you. Now understand, this wasn't just for them. Oh, that's sweet. God the Father was going to remind them of all, you know, we go places and we make memories and we forget so many things. I wish I could remember all those memories. That's so sweet. He's given them these memories of all the time they spent with Jesus. No, no, no. It's not just meant to fill up their minds. He's going to bring them the reminders of what Jesus had done and taught so they could proclaim that to more people. Later in the night, John 16. John 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said... He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is telling the apostles, You're going to know some things. You're going to remember some things about when you were with me, things I taught you, but you're also going to know some new things. The Father is going to send the Spirit, the Father is going to make these things known to you. So so get, get the flow of this. The Father sends His Son to do His work and to speak His word. The Son says, the Father and I are going to send the Spirit to give you more illumination, men. And so when the apostles speak to us, we can bank on that. The Father meant for the Son to proclaim the Father's word, the Father's message. The Son proclaimed that message. He did not lie. The Son then told the apostles, I'm going to send the Spirit So that you would know the message. You would know what the Father wants you to know. The Son did not lie to the apostles. So when the apostles teach us things, they are not lying and we can bank on this truth. This is what we hold to as Christians. The apostolic testimony. Look over at chapter 17. Jesus is done now teaching these disciples the night before he would die. And now he's praying to the Father and we get to hear the prayer read the prayer. Notice what Jesus says starting in John 17, 18. Praying this to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He's talking about the apostles. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, So, he's asking now for protection for these apostles. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's the there? The apostles. This is Jesus praying for us today who will believe in him through the apostles' word, the apostles' message. This is what's happening here. Back to 1 John so as you think about Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, they all have later prophets who they say got new revelation from God, and the apostles are telling us, "No, no, no! You believe us. You believe what we're saying." because the Father has designed it and the Son has designed it, that we would be the ones that proclaim this message. And that's what you believe. Don't go looking for new prophets. Don't go looking for new apostles. You listen to what we've told you. Ephesians 2.20, Paul teaches that Christians are built on the foundation of the apostles and the Old Testament prophets. Our faith is built on the foundation of the Old Testament prophets, and the apostles, these apostles. Acts 2.42, what happens in the early church, the birth of the church, the Holy Spirit comes, people repent, they believe, they're baptized. What do they do now? How do they live their life? Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what they devoted themselves to. The book of Revelation tells us about The new Jerusalem, the city coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem, and on its foundation are written the names of the 12 apostles. Not the 12 plus the later prophets of Islam, not the 12 plus what Mormons tell you, or who Mormons tell you have now come as prophets. No, no, the 12. That's what our faith is built on, what they say, because God intended for them to be the ones that lay the foundation for our faith, Jesus Christ himself being their cornerstone, this is crucial. You know that you are right with God because you believe the apostles doctrine, their message don 't listen to anybody else who tries to tell you something contrary to what the apostles are telling you don 't listen to it it 's popular in today 's circles. E- even some Christians mistakenly say things like, well. I really appreciate Jesus' words, I just kind of have a hard time with Paul's words. Paul's words are Jesus' words because Jesus sent His Spirit, John 14, John 16, to bring things to the apostles' minds for them to then proclaim to you. That's why Pastor Jason read earlier in the service, 2 Peter 1, Peter saying, no prophecy of Scripture comes from man. Men were moved along by the Spirit of God as He breathed out His message through them. So, the church has always understood that when the apostles speak, it's Christ speaking through them. That's what we understand. What does this mean for Canaan Bible Church? Well, Well, we will continue to preach the Scriptures. We will teach the prophets, the Old Testament, and we will preach about Jesus and the gospels and what they lay out for us and the epistles will teach all 66 books because this is what our faith is built upon. There's nothing new to go grab. We have to be committed to this. Heresies spring forth in environments where the apostles' doctrine isn't held on too tightly. So it's good for us to go through a book like 1 John to remember that's right. The foundation we have is built on the apostles' message because that's how God designed it to happen. Now, that shouldn't be new to most of us. We know that. Maybe it's a reminder for some. But I want to encourage you as the people of God in this local church, it's one thing to say on paper, I I hold to the apostles' doctrine. But Acts 2.42, they were devoted to it. And I don't think that just meant in their head they wanted to do what the apostles taught, live out what the apostles taught, because they understood it was Jesus teaching these things through the apostles. And I just want to call on you, call on myself, not just to theologically hold to the apostles' doctrine, but to actually seek to bring our lives into conformity with it as children of God. There are some of us that struggle with bitterness, impatience, laziness, lust, whatever it is, all those sins that we can still struggle with. Know that when you hold on to the apostles' teaching, you're holding on to words that correct, guide, encourage us in our faith. Hold on to the apostles' doctrine, not just in head, but in your heart. When you know that I've just become bitter, toward my family, toward the church, toward X, Y, and Z, the apostles actually teach about how harmful that is. Hold on to the apostles' doctrine. I'm just lazy. I'm not leading well. I'm not doing right. I hold on to the apostles' doctrine. Well, don't just do it in your head. Hold on to what the apostles teach about hard work and leadership. So, The apostles teach us for life. This is Jesus teaching His followers how to live now as disciples of Him. I was was thinking this morning, I was just going through all the New, New Testament epistles and I thought I should just walk through all of them with our people and remind them of what's inside of all of them. We just don't have time, but I want to so bad to remind you of why Romans was written Because we need to hear the message that Paul wrote to the Roman church. We need to hear the message that he wrote to the Thessalonian church. We need to hear 1 John. We need to hear all of it. It's so rich. Keep staying in the word. Listen to Jesus teach you through his word. Hold on to the apostles' doctrine in head and in your heart. So again, how do I know that I can really have eternal life? I mean, there are a lot of messages out there. There are even people that say they're Christians that tell me I'm in the wrong. God sent His Son in human flesh, and He determined that a certain group would take that message and proclaim it and teach the words of life to you. So, how do you know that you're right with God? Because you hold on to their message and theirs alone. You don't listen to new prophets, new revelation. No, no. You listen to what they taught. You hold on to that. That's why the Apostle John says in 2.24, 1 John 2.24, let what you heard from the beginning remain in you. Don't be steered away from our teaching. Let what you heard from the beginning remain in you, abide in you. If you If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise He's made to us, eternal life. So how do you know you have eternal life? One way is that you keep holding on to the apostles' teaching and you don't swerve from it. Don't listen to people who try to change it or improve upon it. And that's something that's said today too. Yes, the apostle Paul, they had this sexual ethic. Peter had this ethic for men and women. But we've advanced as a society. What professing Christians are trying to get you to do when they say things like that is to move on from Paul and Peter. Friend, never move on from Paul and Peter because they were standing as the foundation with Christ as their cornerstone. We don't move away from the apostles. We hold on to their truth. I think of young people here, young people growing up in Christian homes. Well, how do I know that ours is the right faith? I mean, Other faiths seem to have miraculous things happening. Other faiths talk about love and things like that. Our faith is built on the eyewitnesses of what Jesus did and taught. And that's where it ends. Their witness, their testimony. You can know because you're listening to God's appointed messengers. You're listening to God's appointed messengers. Third. How do we know that we're right with God? How do we know that we can be assured of salvation? Well, God sent the word of life to come in human flesh. God meant that message to be declared by his chosen messengers. And third, the message of life brings you into the family of God. The message of life brings us into the family of God. This is so good. The purpose of the apostles' proclamation of the gospel was so their listeners would have fellowship in the family of God. Second part of verse three. We know that they've proclaimed this message so that you too may have fellowship with us. So John's saying, I saw Jesus, I touched him, I heard him, I'm proclaiming you, the message that he taught, the life that he lived, I'm proclaiming that to you, in that message is life. And the reason I'm proclaiming that to you is so that you too may have fellowship with us, the apostles. We want you to have fellowship based on what we've taught and it doesn't end there. And indeed, our fellowship, me, Paul, Peter, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So get the logic here. If you have fellowship in what, with the apostles based on what they taught, then you have fellowship with the Father and the Son. That's what he's saying. You don't have fellowship with us. You go to some other strange teaching, no fellowship with the Father and the Son. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, there's debate there. Does it really mean so that our joy may be complete? Shouldn't it seem like he's saying we're writing these things so that your joy would be complete? I mean, wouldn't having fellowship with the apostles and the Father and the Son bring us much joy? Well, yes. There's debate here because some manuscripts say different things. Some say our joy. Some say your joy. In the context, I believe this is John on behalf of the apostles saying so that our joy would be complete they received joy when the message the Father and the Son gave to them to proclaim. When it's proclaimed, people actually believe it. That, like nothing else, brings them joy. In 3 John, John said this, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. And then listen what he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This gives John joy, to know that you believe the apostolic message and you're holding on to it. That's why he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You're believing what we've declared to you because that was the message we got from the Father and the Son. The Father sent us with a mission and you've now believed it and you've got a relationship with us and the Father and the Son, that is what fires me up. That is what brings me joy. That's what John's doing here. Again, that's why he says in 224, let, that's which what you, let, the, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Keep staying true to what you've heard. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide with the Son, in the Son and in the Father. So if we believe John's message, we will have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. So believer, rest assured you're believing the right message. When you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're believing the right message. That's the message God wants you to believe, God wants you to know, and he's made it clear because the eyewitnesses of all of that are the ones that are proclaiming the message to you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe this is Kind of new to you. Maybe you're thinking through, oh, I've kind of got a number of religions that I know about or I've heard about different ones. I'm telling you, the Christian faith is the one built on the eyewitnesses of what Jesus did and what He taught and who He was. And God has seen to it that there would be a credible group of witnesses that would proclaim that message by which people down through the centuries would believe. The Christian faith is the one testified to by the apostles who were there, and that's how God planned it. If you have questions about that, please come and talk to any of us. Please talk to people around you. If you have questions about Christianity, we want to be a help there. We appreciate your questions. But Christianity is the one built on the apostolic faith. And the apostolic faith is called apostolic because God the Father determined to make certain people apostles to send them out with a message, and those people lived then. No new apostles, no new revelation. That's why the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, ends with the warning of people adding to the revelation. You don't do that and live. You don't tamper with God's completed message. You hang on to what His messengers have taught. The three-part plan of God is meant to bring you assurance of eternal life. First, the message of life came in the flesh. Second, the message of life has been proclaimed by God's messengers. And third, the message of life brings you into the family of God. And again, if you're not a Christian, I am not calling you today simply to the right religion. I hope you heard what John said in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. I'm not inviting you to a religion, I'm inviting you to a love relationship between the Father and the Son that we get to share in. I'm I'm inviting you to be right with your Creator, to go to your heavenly Father who created you and to acknowledge I've sinned against you, I have done wrong, but I trust in what Jesus Christ the Son did to bring me back to you. I want you as a father. I want Jesus as my brother. I want to be in that family. That's the invitation that's before you. And that's what believers enjoy, right? We're part of the family of God. We call God Father, not just God, not just Sovereign One. He's revealed Himself as Father. Thinking about this phrase this week, being brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son, I just wanted to kind of dwell on that for a while, and so I just kind of went chasing different Puritans and different authors just because I wanted to get really the full understanding of fellowship with God and fellowship with His Son that we have. I came across the writings of an old Scottish pastor from the 1800s Robert Candlish, and he wrote about being brought into the fellowship of the Father and the Son, and it, it's so good. I wanted to share it with you. I've kind of adjusted some of his words so that we could maybe better understand, but just listen, listen to this and, and enjoy. <laughs> Notice a father and a son, both of them wise, upright, holy, loving, They are of one mind and heart, perfectly understanding one another, perfectly open to one another, perfectly confiding in one another. Together, they are committed to a great and good undertaking, engrossed thoroughly in a grand pursuit, characterized by a high degree of genius and extraordinary goodness. You are allowed to join them in their own home where they live together, to be admitted to the room where they sit together and discuss things together, to watch the father's face when the son goes out on any errand or on any job agreed upon between them. You see the embrace awaiting the son upon his return. From there, you're privileged to go and join the son on one of these errands. You go with him and together you suffer public shame and suffering and toil and blood. And you join him in being in contact with loathsome filth and even criminals. You walk with him as he makes his way over to the outcast and see how it is his father's pity for that outcast that is always at the forefront of his thoughts. How the son's desire is for his father to get the praise Of every kind and word, every kind and every word spoken, and his father's desire that every person be healed. From there, you go back to sit with the father. You've been on the errand with the son, but now you go back and sit with the father to notice the thrilling interest this father's soul has in what his son is doing. And when they come together again, after the son returns, to talk it all over. When their excited eyes meet, they embrace one another in joy. To be there to see that is a privilege worth living for, worth dying for. It is one thing to observe this glorious father-son relationship, but now to know that we've been invited into it as sons and daughters ourselves is an outstanding grace from God. Friends, the apostles are the messengers with this certain and true invitation from the Father himself. The Father has an invitation for you and I to be welcomed into the family of God and the apostles have that invitation. The invitation to dwell with the Father and his Son is actually stained in the Son's blood. The Father and Son have both stood at the front door, as it were, handed it to the apostles to bring to you and I. Now, when somebody or if anybody ever questions whether or not you are in the family of God by faith in his son, Jesus Christ, you can hold on to that invitation and say, the apostles gave this to me because the father and the son gave it to them. I stand in the family of God. That's why John writes this at the end of the letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving eyewitness testimony to us. Thank you for not just making the gospel true, but preserving it for us to know. Thank you for the message of a Savior who came and died and rose again on our behalf. Thank you for preserving the message through the pen of the apostles. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that they give us life. Father, we do not take them for granted. We pray that you would continue to work life in our hearts and in this church and all all throughout the world as we seek to make the message of life known. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.